Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM. Hi, it's Fraser here. Before we kick off with this week's Spikes podcast, I just wanted to give you another quick reminder that this episode is also available on video. So if you prefer to watch as well as listen to your podcasts, then why not check out the Spiked podcast on video when you get the chance. You can either get it on the Spiked YouTube channel or via the Spiked website at spikes-online.com. Now onto this week's Spiked podcast. Hello and welcome to the Spikes podcast. I'm Fraser Myers. There's no Tom Slater this week, but we are joined by Spikes editor Brendan O'Neill. Hello. And Spike columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the COVID apocalypse that wasn't, the government getting cold feet over net zero, and Simone Biles' withdrawal from the Olympics. So we've had Freedom Day. All of the scientists predicted complete disaster, the opening of clubs, the scrapping of social distancing, the binning of masks, that was all supposed to lead to an explosion in COVID cases. In fact, what we've seen has been completely different. We've seen um, a sustained and rapid fall in cases. At the time we were recording this, we've had seven days in a row of declining cases. I mean, Brendan, what's your sort of reaction to this, first of all? Well, I think it's very positive that there has been this decline in cases. I mean, we do have to take it day by day because there could still be a spike there probably will be a spike at some point and things could blow up in the winter so we can't say we're out of the worst of it yet but it does undermine all the claims that were made by so many experts and so many covid lockdown fanatics of which there are a depressing number you can't turn on channel 4 news or Mm. bbc these days without seeing one of these sage people or independent sage people really ratcheting up the fear over freedom day and saying this is going to be a catastrophe loads of people are going to get sick loads of people are going to die the vaccine doesn't make that much difference these are all the kinds of very negative arguments they were pushing and that has been proven so far that has been proven wrong Mm. and I just think it's important that in the same way that people have held um, COVID deniers, so-called COVID deniers, the way they've been held to account, I also think we need to hold COVID scaremongers to account and really make them account for the things they said, uh, where they prove to be incorrect. But I'm feeling very positive at the moment Mm. because we have created this enormous wall of protection with the vaccine. People, I think, want to get back to normal life, although there's a noisy minority who are still spreading fear. So it's all stuff to look forward to. Yeah, that's that's right. And and I mean, let's think about some of these people. For instance, Neil Ferguson has been at least he's admitted that he he probably um, overstated his case, but he did say it was inevitable that we'd reach a hundred thousand cases per day. Quite likely, we'd reach two hundred thousand. I remember just the week before Freedom Day, there were one thousand two hundred scientists organised this open letter to the Guardian saying that England's Freedom Day was a danger to the entire world. Mm. I mean, I suppose isn't the problem that it's not only that people were making these claims with a lot of certainty, but also, you know, with such kind of moral force with, um, it's not just that they were claiming this is going to be a disaster, but they were so certain and so kind of scaremongering about it. 
Yeah. And I think if Brendan's put forward a very optimistic case, if I can temper it with <laughs> the pessimistic case, which is that actually Freedom Day wasn't what I probably wanted it to be or what lots of us wanted it mm. to be because the knock-on effect of that onslaught of scaremongering, um, you know, some of it, tangentially based in reality in terms of there is this issue with strains, there is this issue with spikes and everything that Brendan's already said. But the general idea that was put forward by many commentators that if you go to a nightclub, mm. vaccinated or unvaccinated, actually, as it happens, then you are directly leading to some kind of catastrophe, some kind of locked, uh, lockdown three. The knock-on effect that has had is that unfortunately, lots of people didn't treat it like the throw off the chains and run out in the street day that it could have been. Mm. There wasn't as much of a positive sense about the reclaiming of the public square of society. And that's, I think, going to be almost as much a bigger problem as the practicalities of reopening in terms of jobs, in terms of the economy, is the kind of national psyche in like, <laughs> how people feel about reclaiming their freedom. And, you know, freedom as a word is now so used in, in such a kind of broad way by so many people who really don't actually care about freedom, who don't understand what it means, don't understand the ramifications of arguing for freedom, that it's a I'm, I get nervous that it's a little bit of a depressing picture. And the, one of the main things that annoys me most is that all the commentators who are still playing up to the COVID fear only, you know, four or five, six months ago when we were talking about the vaccine rollout were saying that this was our ticket out of here yeah. and, you know, being very positive about the vaccine. And now, I mean, we've mentioned this on the podcast before, it's almost like they're as bad as kind of mad people who turn out on Saturday in yeah. Trafalgar Square and in their denial of the vaccine, you just think, hang on a minute, if we've still got a problem with 20 to you know 25 year olds not getting this thing, do you want to stop being so negative about it? Because that's <laughs> certainly not going to convince them to get it. And uh, yeah, Brenda, I mean, do you think there's a deeper social problem this, that this speaks to, that we're sort of unable to ever really um, declare victory over this virus. I mean, we've no, I mean, the falling cases is fantastic news, of course, but we have known for some time that the vaccines are really effective and are really, you know, making basically severing the links between hospital, between infection and death, but we still just can't let them win. That's right. I think what Ella's absolutely right that there is, there's still stuff to be worried about, particularly with this kind of reluctance on some people's part to really embrace freedom or re-embrace freedom. I think what's important about that is to remember how much that is informed by trends that pre-existed COVID-19. Mm. And so what the COVID-19 pandemic has done has exacerbated a lot of those negative trends, a general uh, disdain for freedom or a fear of freedom, a sense of atomization, people people feeling they're cut off from everybody else, um, a sense of panic in relation to health concerns and other problems, an apocalyptism, which we'll come on to in relation to climate change. Yeah. All of those trends have been swirling around for a few decades and the pandemic exacerbated them. So it, it, it's not surprising that there is still a reluctance for people just to throw themselves back into society. But there were a lot of positive moments when I saw, you know, I haven't been to a nightclub for, I don't know, 25 years. But when I saw <laughs> those young people queuing up so they could go in of a strike of midnight, yeah. as soon as they reopened, Sunday evening. <laughs> I just thought that was so positive mm. um, and crazy. Presumably they don't have jobs or they had the day off, but it was so such a positive thing to see. But I think um, in relation to the freedom question, the battle for freedom goes on. That's the point. Mm. And it's not going to be won overnight and it is going to be an uphill struggle. The experts, the so-called experts and the commentariat who are still whipping up fear, they are 
essentially respectable anti-vaxxers yeah. because they are talking about society as if it's still a complete nightmare. We're all still diseased. You might die. You might get long COVID. Thousands and thousands of young people will be sick for months on end. This is the kind of stuff they're pushing out. Which is another way of saying the vaccines haven't really done much for us. Society is still in a really bad state. And so they really unwittingly align with the crazy anti-vaxxers who are mm. saying it's pointless to take this vaccine and it will poison you and you will die. And so uh, that's something it's really important to push back against and to say, listen, the vaccine has been revolutionary in what it's done. In It's turned a serious virus into something that's the equivalent of flu. And that's down to human ingenuity uh, the unbelievable rollout of the vaccine, which took tens of thousands of people to achieve. And that's worth celebrating. But that's only part of the argument. The other argument has to be freedom is something worth having. And we have got to re rediscover why that is. And we should talk about the um, the unrespectable anti-vaxxers as well. I mean, there were many of them. Um, there was a sort of demo on Saturday. There have been many of these kind of um, anti-lockdown demos. And there have been obviously some kind of anti-vax voices in the crowd. But Basically, everyone on stage at this Trafalgar Square rally seemed to be an anti-vaxxer, whether it's Katie Hopkins, whether it's, you know, the Corbyn brother, Piers Corbyn, the worst, the, the madder <laughs> Corbyn brother, if that's possible, <laughs> David Icke, David Some, Icke Jr., yeah. mm. Gareth Icke. Mm. <laughs> um, people saying the vaccine's satanic, saying that the NHS nurses should be hung and put on a kind of Nuremberg trial. I mean, this is probably the... Biggest, I mean, this, these ideas have been swirling around, but this is probably the first time they really burst out into the open in such a public way. I mean, what what the hell is going on? Do you think? Well, uh, it was a, a depressing and shocking lineup. I mean, it, just in terms of lack of ingenuity to have to roll out the same kind of tired, mm. publicly discredited names like Ike, but also to have someone like Kate Shimarani who got up and talked about the Nure Nuremberg trials mm. and Satan and demons mm. and you know, have no one from the crowd get up and grab the mic and challenge this madness was a real problem. And, you know, there's, there's, there have always been, it's important to say minorities, they are a minority, um, who are, you know, quacky, who are on the fringe, who believe in all kinds of stuff. But the problem is for sensible, uh, and reasonable lockdown critics of which, you know, we are on this podcast and we have been throughout this pandemic voicing a kind of a different view to the uh, mainstream kind of lockdown is the only answer mm. point of view. You then have a responsibility to not let this colour that sort of group of people. And there were many people in that crowd who were pissed off with lockdown, pissed off with not having their freedoms um, given back to them or reclaimed because of, you know, not being able to see their families in care homes or like yeah. all very reasonable, normal, positive things. Mm. But the responsibility is in, for, to not allow the kind of COVID panickers to be able to characterize any kind of lockdown skeptic thought as equivalent to, you know, Katie Hopkins getting up and ranting about how fantastic she is for getting kicked out of Australia. Yeah, yeah. You do have to take some responsibility and to, um, to call it out. I mean, I interviewed Robin Monotti, the architect, um, on the weekend. And what he was, you know, he's this and a kind of individual, he's typical of this crowd who comes across as very reasonable. He's got his theories about vitamin D and all this kind of stuff. But underneath it, then he talks about, you know, not to me, but to other people, the fact that the vaccine is like, uh, you know, the Nazi kind of eugenicist regimes yeah. and a master race. You've got to flush out this stuff. And the way you flush it out is by debating and by talking about it. And so the problem, as much as I 
hate and a visceral reaction, the craziness of this stuff, the calls to either put them on trial, you know, everyone's <laughs> yeah. talking about trials these days, jail them, mm. to ban them, is just feeding into that conspiratorial mindset. And isn't this the great thing about free speech? I mean, but also it comes with, you know, our responsibility to push back, right? Mm. We, we should allow this, these things to be said, but then to argue against them. That's right. And um, you summed it up perfectly, Fraser, in your article for Spike this week. It was a carnival of irrationality. I mean, mm. it was despicable. When I saw some of the quotes and some of the clips of, of what people were saying, I just thought these are really despicable people saying things that are patently untrue, dangerous, toxic, poisonous just and very anti-human conspiracy theories are always anti-human because um that their starting point is that most people are stupid idiots yeah we're sheeple we don't know what's going on um and we are the enlightened ones on this stage to tell you that satan is taking over your brain or whatever they're saying um so really awful people they really do need to be called out completely agree that any suggestion that they should be arrested or put on trial or put in jail which is coming from some pretty serious commentators that's a, a completely illiberal idea and also one that feeds into their sense of victimhood. Um, but one thing I've been thinking about is why these kinds of crazy theories take hold. I mean, there are so many reasons why conspiracy theories take hold. They often come from a sense of powerlessness. People mm. feel like they don't know what's going on in the world. That's not to excuse them, by the way. It's just to try and understand them. But I think one reason is because we've been in lockdown for 18 months. Yeah. And so the normal to and fro of public discussion, which takes place everywhere from the workplace ca- canteen through to the public square, uh, Westminster and everything else, that's all been decommissioned. That's mm. just not existed for long periods of time over the past year and a half. So people haven't been pulled up in the way that they might have been before, even by their friends and family who they may not have seen for, for months on end. So that's the perfect breeding ground for crazy nonsense. And I think that's part of why they, these conspiracy theories have become so intense yeah. because they've been allowed to flourish away from the correcting dynamic of democratic life. And so th- I think that's one of the problems with them, but that is not to excuse them. I think they're terrible. I think uh, on the lockdown skeptic side of the discussion, which is very different from the anti-vaxxer, and we should really not allow the commentariat to say they're one and the same thing. Mm. But even on the lockdown skeptic side, there is this growing tendency, I fear, to see ordinary people as dumb. And um, why can't you realise how bad lockdowns are? Why can't you realise that the government is screwing you over? What's wrong with you? You know, and they see these opinion polls that show majorities of people support the lockdown and they have this very visceral response to them. That's not helpful either because Mm. there is an anti-democratic dynamic to that. And you're not going to win people over by presenting them as idiots or sheeple or or whatever else they might be referred to as. So across the board, I do think we need a re- democratizing off the discussion about lockdowns and off the discussion about the future. And uh, a starting point of that has got to be calling out crazy theories publicly where everyone can see you doing it in order to improve that debate. I just wanted to take a moment out of the Spike podcast to tell you a little bit about Spiked Supporters. Spiked Supporters is our new and thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spiked supporter and get access to a number of exciting perks. Spiked supporters can comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop, and you can bookmark articles as you browse. 
This is our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free, and yet so many of you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure anyone, anywhere can enjoy our content. We really are grateful for that. So if you don't give to Spiked yet, now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked-online.com forward slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spiked supporters account. That's spiked-online.com forward slash supporters. After COVID, um, perhaps we have, there's another apocalypse on the horizon, potentially (laughs) climate change. This is the government's next focus. Um, There's been a flurry of announcements this week around what we can do to go greener. One Step Greener is the government's campaign launched by uh, Allegra Stratton, the former newscaster and now the spokeswoman for COP26. And she's suggesting that we should do things like um, not rinse our dishes before we put them in the dishwasher. We should freeze our bread and we should walk to the supermarket. And at the same time, behind the scenes, there seems to be something very different going on in terms of net zero. The government is struggling to push through its boiler ban, having to push that back by five years. The chancellor is horrified by the potential 1.4 trillion bill of uh, net zero. I mean, what do we make of this kind of mismatch between sort of, I don't know, public declarations that you just have to change little things and then privately behind the scenes, this knowledge that actually net zero is a massive, massive undertaking? Well, the the clue is in the name. One step greener gives you, it, you know, really paints a good picture of what's going wrong because the whole idea of it's one step, it's all based on individual mm. uh, habits or, you know, the idea that it's the absurd idea that the, you know, that the catastrophe that everyone from Extinction Rebellion to cabinet ministers paints is on the horizon, you know, the apocalypse, the end of the world would be fixed by you not rinsing your dishes, putting them into the <laughs> dishwasher just on their own terms is completely unbelievable and ridiculous. But more importantly, there is there, you know, it feels like all of this is simply working up to a PR exercise in in the guise of COP26, that what Boris Johnson and most cabinet ministers are concerned about, you know, bar Rishi Sunak, who at least has some sense in being a little bit worried about the cost, is can we meet these targets in order to show off on the global stage? Yeah. And the the crucial point is that you have you squander the possibility of any kind of positive outlook in this. So if you have if you had a government that was, for example, willing to meet the challenges of the modern world in terms of thinking about how we can innovate for better energy, better heating, looking at how we can give better housing, you know, talking about different ways of providing energy and having not a one step for each individual, but a kind of national program of looking at infrastructure and stuff like that, then that could be positive. But instead what you have is this really mean mouthed way of looking at things, which essentially we have now have kind of pathologized energy yeah. to the point where energy is this bad thing that you don't want to be using energy, you don't want to be spending on energy. And what that means is for the average person, nothing changes in their lives apart from maybe their energy bill will go up if they get have one of these either heat pump or hydrogen pumps forced on them. And so any kind of space for innovative thinking goes out the window. And in contrast, we're being told that the world is going to win. So surely you would need some innovative thinking <laughs> on their own kind of terms. Yeah. Brendan, what do you make of this? I mean, especially on the, on the, the world is going to end front. We've mm-hmm. heard a lot about how the floods in Germany and then, and then the floods in London are, you know, the harbinger of the kind of apocalypse to come. I, I think we're starting to see just how 
cultish environmentalism has become and how religious it's become. And I don't mean that as an insult to religious people. There are all sorts of interesting and good religious people. But the politics of climate change, the um, climate change alarmism has become this kind of end of world cultish worldview. That's what mm. it is. It, the way it talks about, um, you know, floods as a kind of lesson for mankind, a punishment for our hubris. Um, it, it talks about the coming apocalypse, the wiping out of human life, potentially the wiping out of all life. It has this idea of sin, this notion that if you do certain things, you are harming the environment, you're harming the polar bears, you're harming the ozone layer. I don't know if people talk about the ozone layer anymore, but you're much, harming but... <laughs> something or other. Um, and therefore you need to self-flagellate, you need to do penance, you need to recycle a certain amount in order to make up for your eco sins. So it's a very religious movement. And I think the floods that have taken place, the ones in Europe have been absolutely devastating. There have also been floods in London. And what I've noticed is that lots of people with a green mindset almost relish these kinds of events mm. because they hold them up instantly as proof of their thesis. And this is what we are going to get. And what they're essentially saying is this is what we deserve because we've dared to live in an industrialized modern society that emphasizes economic progress and economic growth, although not enough as far as I'm concerned. So um, it has this very religious feel to it. But I think I really agree with the point Ella's making. There's always been this contradiction in environmentalism between, on the one hand, the crazy claims they make about the coming apocalypse and how disastrous it will be, billions wiped out and the planet on fire, etc. And what they then demand that people do and what they demand that people do is, you know, separate your rubbish or mm. drive to the supermarket less or, you know, go on holiday once a year rather than twice a year. So, or if you go on one of their demonstrations, which they used to have a lot of in the past, and it would all be about the end of the world, but they'd all be dancing and waving things around. And there was always a mismatch between what they claimed and what they did. And so I think it's a confused movement. They don't really know what they're talking about, but it seems to me that the engine of it is this depressive misanthropic view that mankind is a destructive force, a plague on the planet, and um, we are going to land in the crap if we don't start changing our ways. And pushing back against that and against net zero, which I think is a crazy idea, I think that's very important for progressives to do. And also, if we just think about the kind of practicalities of, of net zero, I mean, the heat pump news has been, you know, the one dominating the news this week. Um the boiler ban being pushed back to 2040. I mean, the, the reality is that this is a great example of how the kind of cart has been put beho before the horse, the target of carbon neutrality put before the technology exists to realise it. Because these heat pumps, you know, whatever we might think of them, you know, technology is technology, but they're just not the same as gas boilers and they cannot heat most homes up to normal room temperature a lot of the time. And they cost a fortune to install. And then, you know, it's it's strange because the average person, unless they're given huge government subsidies, which you know the chancellor doesn't want to do, mm. <laughs> um, is going to you know spend a lot of money to convert their existing well-working boiler into something that doesn't keep their house warm. And I thought that was a pretty standard thing to expect in a developed country that, you know, we can no longer take for granted thanks to net zero and thanks to, you know, climate policy. Yeah, it's, it's the presentism, the way of thinking about things in a real kind of short-term mindset that is one of the biggest barriers here. And it's not just about sort of not being able to look into the future. It's, as Brendan says, a misanthropic aversion to doing anything mm. um, rather than just tinkering around the edges. I mean, part of the problem with the heat pump question is it's very all very well and actually should happen if governments want to, for example, build new towns and new cities yeah. and 
and use, you know, when you're building those houses, use the most efficient and wasteless form of um, energy that can, is cost effective and can still heat your house to, you know, a reasonable temperature for a reasonable price. What's not to love about that? But the fact is, you know, huge numbers of people in the UK are living in houses that if they have to be retrofitted will be unworkable. Mm. And, uh, you know, it, what is everyone in their council flat going to have a solar panel on their window? It's just so ridiculous and short is a kind of short-term mindset. But the important thing about the, you know, if you take the example of the floods, I mean, there was this discussion of it being, obviously they did look biblical mm. and they and they were horrendous and people lost their lives. But rather than seeing it as the way environmentalists put it is that nature kind of biting back at us mm. and this is the cost that you pay for living and breathing and expending energy seeing it as a problem that human beings might have contributed to but that human beings can innovate out of so like yeah. for example in london having better drainage having thinking about where you put tarmac in a different way you know all these very practical sensible reasonable issues that when you when you put a kind of kibosh on any discussion about Car, you know, it has to be carbon neutral. It has to be energy uh, less. It has to be green. If you don't give yourself the space to think about practical and innovative ways of moving forward and celebrate the idea that human beings will be the drivers of those ways of thinking, then you're never going to move anywhere. Then mm. nothing is ever going to change. And actually, what we should embrace is that things do change. Mm. We want things to change. We want things to be more efficient. Surely history tells us that we can mitigate against, you know, the bad impacts of climate. Um, and surely that is not going to change in the future. I mean, you know, it's statistically true that um, compared to 100 years ago, 99% fewer people die every year from climate related disasters. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that climate change isn't serious, but we never think about, you know, what does the actual, what does it mean that the climate is changing in the context of hopefully a more developed, a more developed economy and a, and a country where we can afford to protect ourselves from adverse weather? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, we're not... Um, we're not living in mud huts. We're not going to get, you know, blown down the street from um, you know, from a storm. Essentially, we we can protect ourselves. But also, importantly, some people are still living in mud huts, and the mm. hot, well, yes, you know, in the exactly. and the, the the one of the worst things about green thinking is the just total disregard for development. And you know, talk a lot about you know foreign aid in the developing world, and no one actually talks about giving people the means to develop out of poverty, to actually act upon the world, to be able to become players in the world. It's all mm. very well us tinkering around with, you know, putting your green glass in the bottle in, in the UK. While, you know, I tell you people in living in, you know, Sierra Leone and other places in the world would love to have the kind of moral debates we have about recycling. Yeah. Instead, they haven't even got there yet. So there's that moral question to it as well. Spiked is producing more content than ever. The best way to keep up with everything we do is by signing up for our daily newsletter. It's called Today on Spiked. Every weekday, you'll get a roundup of all of Spiked's content, plus some exclusive commentary. So never miss a thing on Spiked by going to spiked-online.com forward slash newsletters and signing up to Today on Spiked. Let's finally talk a bit about uh, Tokyo 2020. Um, in particular, Simone Biles has, you know, caused a huge media storm across the world by withdrawing from um, some of her events. We don't know if she'll, we don't yet know if she'll participate in some, but she cited her mental health. And there seems to almost be a kind of celebration of this, almost as if it's better that she withdrew on these grounds 
than had she won. I mean, Brendan, you've written about this. What do you make of it? Uh, the whole thing is so weird and um, a little bit depressing because she is one of the, Simone Biles is one of the Olympians you tune in to watch because mm. she is just phenomenal. I mean, if anyone who's seen clips of her on the floor in particular, you know, there are moves that only she can do. Uh, so she's this incredible athlete, this incredible Olympian, uh, one of the ones people are, one of the ones who's most popular and people really want to watch that stuff. Um, and then she dropped out. So it's depressing from that level. We won't get to see her do her stuff. But then the discussion about it has become crazy. Mm. Now, we don't really know why she dropped out. It looks to me like she really fluffed the vault really badly and maybe got nervous for some reason and then decided to call it a day. Now, maybe that's justifiable. We don't know what's going on in her mind. We don't know what's going on in her life that's her decision um but the celebration of it as this wonderful breakthrough and some people saying it's better even than if she had won gold yeah uh, because she sent this message to the world especially to girls that it's okay to prioritize your mental health it's okay to pull out of things if the stress gets too much um and michelle obama approvingly tweeting about simone bars by saying Am I enough? Yes, I am. That, that's apparently Michelle Obama's mantra. I guess that's easy to say if you're a very wealthy former first lady and you wake up saying, am I enough? Yes, I am. But lots of people <laughs> don't wake up feeling like that. And presumably sports people in particular don't mm. wake up feeling like that. The whole point of being a sports person is you never quite think that you're enough. You're always pushing and pushing and trying to get faster and stronger and everything else. And that's the whole motto of the Olympics. Yeah. Um, and so the spectacle of the Olympics, the thing that's so wonderful about it, it is that it is these human beings doing superhuman things that the rest of us can't do. They're faster and stronger and more agile than the rest of us. Um, so now that we're seeing a celebration of frailty in the Olympics, I think that's a worrying sign of the times and a worrying sign that we now value victimhood. I don't think Simone Biles is a victim, but that's the culture that's mm. been whipped up over the past 24 hours. Um, we now uh, valorize the culture of victimhood over the Olympian culture of pushing yourself to your limits. And that's a worry. And Ella, I mean, what do you make of the kind of discussion around mental health that this has kind of become a part of? Because it seems to me that, as, as you say, Brendan, we have no idea um, what Simone, what's going on in Simone Biles' head, partly because mental health can mean anything from severe psychological trauma, mm. you know, debilitating um, illness to I feel a bit rubbish. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the thing about Biles, I mean, there's been some reports now that either she said or someone said that she got the twisties, which mm, is mm. sounds like having vertigo in midair. It's sort of horrible and actually can be, as I'm no gymnast, but sounds like it can be quite dangerous. And so you can imagine having, uh, being freaked by that happening to you and losing all your confidence and deciding to pull out. And while there should be no, uh, no, you shouldn't be condemned for that, yeah. that people should be sympathetic about it. The fact that it is, it is a failure. It is either, it, it it is a failure on your part, a failure on luck, you know, not mm. being with you that night. But it is a shame. And that, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's shameful. Yeah. But I think the important thing about saying that is, is that necessarily a mental health issue? Mm. Um, or is it just a part of life that happens? I was struck by um, the the contrast in the way in which Tom Dean, the um, GB swimmer, was talked about in relation to Simone Biles. I mean, he was celebrated a lot. He was all on the radio in this fantastic double win or triple win. I can't even keep up with it. And he in particular had COVID twice 
um, before while he was training and had to kind of mentally and physically at one point he wasn't able to get up the stairs without keep you know getting out of breath and he managed to push through that 21 years old and get you know several medals at the Olympics and there was a quiet kind of celebration of that mm. but there wasn't you know I thought I'm pushing myself around Parliament Hill Lido you know thinking I've got to be try and be more like Tom Dean this is <laughs> and you know a useful means of shame of saying I've got to kind of try and aspire to this greatness but there was there was less willingness to celebrate that feat of humanity mm-hmm. of him pushing himself mentally and physically to the edge and succeeding and it's very easy to as Brendan says celebrate someone who steps away and steps down and the, the it sets a very dangerous precedent for any kind of healthy competitiveness yeah. or actually the the healthy way of looking at failure which is to say that it's okay to fail no one's going to kind of ring you through the streets and yeah. and paint a bit of, you know big letter a on your back and whatever and hang an effigy of you as yeah. we've had with footballers <laughs> but, i'm glad we don't do that anymore no, <laughs> but the but you know failure is part of comp- competition Mm. and it's always a risk and if you fail then uh that's life and rather than taking it as saying you know fair play to Simone Biles she has to do whatever she has to do let's move on you have this kind of talk about carnivals you have this carnival of celebration of her of turning her weakness into a strength when actually no it's a weakness it's not a weakness that she should be whipped for but it's a weakness and that has to be part of sport it has to be part of any kind of form of life or otherwise we're just pretending that life is always sunny and always lovely and when anyone actually comes to face a real kind of failure they're not going to be able to handle it Mm. that kind of bad precedent is the worrying one Brendan, do you want to give a final thought? That is the worry, that we are celebrating failure. And as Ella says, this is not something people should be shamed for, but it's also not something people should be celebrated for, especially not in the Olympics. You should be celebrated for your victories. If you don't get gold, essentially, I mean, I know silver and bronze are very important medals, but if you don't get gold, that's what you're struggling for. And Mm. not getting there is a, a failure on your part or proof that you haven't got pushed hard enough or proof that you just aren't as good as the other people. That's what the Olympics are about. They're about making judgments, uh, you know, how fast is someone, how strong is someone. So to, to let that wither away, even in the Olympics, I think is a worrying sign of the times. But there has been a lot of this stuff recently of celebrating people who essentially have failed. So if you look at the Euro finals, for example, the three heroes, the three lions, the three guys whose images are everywhere – are Rashford, Sancho and Saka. Now Mm. we know why it's because they got some racist abuse, which was really obscene and unpleasant and completely and utterly undeserved. And so people wanted to offer them solidarity. But as a consequence, we've heard virtually nothing about Kane, Maguire and Shaw who scored goals Mm. or about Jordan Pickford, who was the man of the tournament, I think. Um, And so for a new generation, they are encouraged to valorize people who just didn't reach their potential Mm. in the heat of the moment. That's what happened to those three young men. It doesn't mean they're not brilliant footballers. Of course they are, but they didn't reach their full potential. And I'm worried about a society that encourages young people in particular to feel that it's okay to do badly. When in fact, surely what we should be doing is saying, listen, strive to be the best, push yourself harder and harder. Don't think that you're enough in the way that Michelle Obama wants you to, and try and be as good as Simone Biles or uh, Harry Kane or someone else. So I think the lack of heroes, the lack of sporting heroes, I think that tells us something about the kind of uh, celebration of victimhood and losers, essentially, that we have in contemporary society. Thank you for listening to The Spike Podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. 
check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.